be what you expect of me But I'm trying every day with all I do And do not say Here on the edge of the abyss Knowing everything in my whole life has led to Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 8th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us today, we have a very special guest. Drew Drogi is joining us uh, by telephone. Uh, Broadway fans know Drew from his amazing smash hit, Bright Colors and Bold Patterns, which he wrote and is starring in. And it is soon coming to Broadway HD and is going to be recorded. Uh, we're, we're, we're recording on Sunday morning, April 8th. On Monday evening, April 9th, they're going to be recorded for Broadway HD. Drew, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. So this is awesome. I mean, uh, your show has been acclaimed for years now. Uh, it was the New York Times Best Theater of 2016, uh, and we're in 2018. So it's been out there for a few years and getting a lot of critical acclaim. And now Broadway HD swooped in and said, let's record it. So how did that happen, and what is it like? Um, I, I, I'm over the moon. It was like, it was just a show that started I, I, in LA. I, I did it at a tiny theater, sort of 30 feet. It was a 30 seat theater where I was doing it um, in 2013. So it's kind of, it's beyond, you know, um, overwhelming to, to realize that we're going to be filming it, you know, for anybody who wants to check it out online on Broadway HD um, tomorrow. So we're just really excited about it. Um, yeah, we we um, we had sort of been in contact with that with that service and and met with them and they're they're great they're really they're they um, you know just seeing a bunch of shows in New York Broadway and off Broadway that they uh, you know are are um, acquiring and shooting professionally and so people who aren't able to get to New York um, uh, are will be able to you know check out you know the best of what's here so we're 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 really excited about about it all happening tomorrow. <clears throat> all right. One of, one of the themes of the show seems to be that uh, gay people run the risk of losing their identity as time goes on, that conformity may be taking over. When did that idea first occur to you? Well, um, yeah, I always wanted to, to raise that question. And, um, and uh, uh, it's, it's sort of been in my mind 
for you know for a long time as we as we uh, get uh, you know as we reach towards equality and we get more and more acceptance and become more mainstream, which is obviously a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen um, within our own community our, our sort of immediate need to keep up with the Joneses and sort of try to try to like immediately assimilate to um, heteronormative culture, which has always been so interesting to me that like, you know, obviously marriage equality is a wonderful thing and we're so mm-hmm. glad, but why do immediately when that becomes legal that that, becomes, you know, you go up to every gay couple and say, when are you getting married? Uh-huh. Um, and so, and it's sort of like, wow, that's such an, you know, and so I, that's, and so I wanted to sort of use marriage as sort of a window into like a bigger picture, like queerness and what are we, trying to scrub away what do we sort of hate within ourselves and that's why with the title bright colors and bold patterns you know what you know brightness and boldness are we afraid of within ourselves and what are we what are we putting away in order to sort of fit in um you know and so i just i wanted to raise those questions and so i wrote a character who was sort of really you know um sort of on the edge of uh you know of you know, sort of not understanding his own community within that, um, and and desperately afraid of losing uh, his community and um, and our otherness. You know, for the, in the sake of um, you know, uh, you know, you know, mm-hmm. being homogenous. All right. Now, uh, one of the things that happens here is that Jerry, the character you play. Um, <clears throat> runs into his uh, old boyfriend and his new boyfriend um, there. Yeah. And uh, have you seen this happen in your real life? Uh, was that part of the reason that the play was written? Because you would run into this situation, either yourself or seeing a friend having this uh, problem? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely, you know, a lot of it is autobiographical. A lot of it is what I have obviously seen, you know, with friends. But, yeah. I think there's also a lot of the, the idea of like, you know, with, you know, when you date someone and then you, 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 you know, years later, you're over it and you're friends again. And then they, you start seeing them dating someone new, you know, it depends on the person and obviously on the situation, but when you see, when you maybe don't approve of who they're with, you have your, your feelings kind of come back and you don't feel it's this complicated feeling of like, I don't, I don't own you. And we, we haven't dated for years. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, sure. we've, we've become friends like so we're still in each other's lives. It's not just like I'm, I haven't seen you for 10 years and we're running into each other. Well, then I I don't care who you date, but I still know you and see you and still love you, even though I'm not in love with you and we're not dating anymore. Um, and so and I, I've, I've noticed that a lot um, in, you know, within my friends and in the gay community, because um a lot of times, you know, we date each other and then break up and then within no time become friends. And just go, we weren't compatible in that department, but we still love each other. And we still like to hang out with each other. Um, but it can be complicated when there might still be feelings there years later that you're, you're not even really maybe aware of. <clears throat> As I'm sure you're aware, we have a major high-profile revival of the Boys in the Band coming up, and oh, it yeah. will be really yeah. interesting to see that play in the context of plays like yours. It would be almost fun to see uh, both of them in the same day. Maybe you should sh- oh, <laughs> try to fork oh, that out. Some- no, but I mean, I was so inspired by Boys in the Band and Love, Our Compassion with this play, because it was just a group of group of gay friends in a house together and having to spend, spend, you know, a night, uh, you know, and, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very much inspired by that play. I, I can't wait to see the revival. And, um, you know, and there's so many. I mean, with, with Torch Song and Angels in America, and there's so many of these, you know, big, you know, gay plays that are going to Broadway, and new audiences are going to be seeing them for the first time. And, and also realizing how different all of those plays are. And, you know, um, and so I'm excited for the conversation. So there's not the one gay play on Broadway that people go and see that sort of represents us, you know, cause I, I, I'm, that's why I'm very excited about just the future and just sort of like, there, there's, there won't be like a one-stop shopping, like this, you know, this one piece is, is uh, the flavor of your, <laughs> your whole perspective. Instead, it's like, you have a lot of, uh, you know, things to choose from and a lot of different points of view. Right. Now, uh, growing up in South Carolina, uh, did you come out at an early age or not at all? Uh, what was your own personal experience there uh, growing up as a gay man? Yeah, it was, I, I sort of like, I, I really didn't come out until after college. And it was, uh-huh. like, and it was a very, it was, it was, it's so weird because like I, I, I never sort of really came out like in a, in a, in a major way. I was like, people kind of always knew and it's a very Southern thing to be like, whatever your sexuality is. I think even if you're heterosexual in the South, people like just really don't want to talk about it or hear about uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. So, and then also it was like, you know, I, I mean, I looked back and I was like, I had my own hangups about it as we all do. But I mean, it's like, I, 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 I grew up in a small town actually in North Carolina, but in my experience, in my memory, it was, it was great. And I, and I loved it. I mean, when I've gone back to visit there, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I grew up. Cause I, I, I guess I just didn't know uh-huh. what I was missing, but I just, you know, it was, it was, it was, um, it was fine. I mean, I don't know. I didn't, it wasn't incredibly oppressive. It wasn't like, oh my God, I, I didn't feel comfortable here as much as, you know, just, you know, in general, the South is just, is sexually repressive. I think gay straight or anything in between. <laughs> you mentioned sure. that, uh, you mentioned, you brought up Torch Song before, and of course, uh, your show is directed by Michael Yuri. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I can't even imagine what the rehearsals were like for you guys. Were, was it just uh, eight hours of laughing straight? <laughs> um yeah, I mean we're we're good friends and we've worked together on some other things before, so we collaborate really well. And um, yeah, I mean you know we 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 definitely laughed a lot, but I mean Michael has such a great eye and saw the show in its workshop form originally and asked to like come on and turn it into more of a production. But he has such a good sense of like big picture, and he's also really honest with me and just you know and saying you know, this moment didn't work and play it this way. And so, I mean, he's, you know, he, his focus is on, you know, definitely on having a good show. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, we, you know, we have a really good relationship because we're able to sort of effortlessly go from laughing together to like a, to, you know, business. And uh, you also have a, a plan after it's uh after it's recorded for Broadway HD, you're going to close up at the Soho Playhouse, but you plan to take it out on the, on the road. Uh, any yes. more solid plans about that? And, and will you attempt we the South? We don't have anything. I'm sorry. Say that again. Will you attempt the South? Nah. Um, oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> we, have to take it, we have to take it around the world if we can. We, have, we, we don't have anything 
you know, solidly in place. We're trying to target specific theaters and, and, and audiences, but I would, love, I would love to do it in the South. And there's so many references in the play to Atlanta and the Carolinas. And, um, and yeah, I would love to take this to, I mean, this is a very intimate play. So I, I sort of, I, I'm, I'm so excited about doing it at smaller theaters and, and for audiences, again, who, who um, you know, couldn't make it to New York at the time or LA um, that, because um, hopefully it will, um, you know, translate and be able to, to play all over wherever we can, wherever we can put it up. And uh, we might point out that your show uh, was serving margaritas long before Margaritaville ever hit Broadway. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we gave Jimmy Buffett that idea. You know, he he, he was desperately looking for a drink for a drink to talk about. <laughs> Well, that's that's awesome. Your Broadway HD production is going to be produced by Stuart F. Lane and, Bo- and Bonnie Comley and uh, directed by David Horn, who's also the executive producer of PBS's Great Performances for WNET. Uh, so uh, ha- uh, did you have to uh, adjust it any or did you have different types of rehearsals in order to get ready for Broadway HD or are you just doing the same thing and letting them work around you? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, we, we've done, uh, you know, we, we are having to, because we have, you know, multiple cameras in there. So we've had to sort of figure out, um, you know, how how I'm going to do it without. But it's, it's pretty much, it's pretty much the show. I mean, we have audiences coming to the tape. We're telling them that we're, we're, we're recording it as it is, you know. And, um, and what I like about Broadway HD is they're not trying to make it flick. They really want it to feel like you're you're having the experience of watching a play. This is watching a filmed, you know, uh, a, a, you know, a special, you know, television special. Um, and so, which I think is really smart because it's giving you the sense that you're there in the theater. So, you know, they were saying like, you know, unless it's a major hiccup, a major problem, you know, we're not going to stop. And which I think is, uh, which is exciting. So my show is very improvisational. I mean, I, I tell it's it's. 95% the same show every night, but that 5% is just, you know, there'll be a line here or there that I'll might change or lose or whatever. Um, and so that'll be, that'll be it tomorrow. And that'll, that'll be the, the, the version of the show that, that will live, uh, you know, on Broadway HD. Um, but we rehearsed, you know, for, for lighting and obviously some um, proper nouns had to be taken out because we, you know, we don't have rights, you know, things like that. But like, for the most part, it's, it's, it's the play, you know? Yeah. Well, that's great. So, uh, tomorrow, April 9th, Monday, April 9th, uh, Broadway HD is going to record, uh, your show, bright colors and bold patterns. And we'll see when it actually appears on Broadway HD. And we'll uh, mention that to our listeners as well. So you can catch up with it. Uh, Drew, thank you so much for talking with us on Broadway Radio about it, and uh, come back and chat with us again soon. I would love that. I would love that. Thanks so much for the for the interview. I appreciate it. I've sat alone in this room before, hours and hours on end. I know this delusional wish the door would open to reveal a friend. I know this solitude, I know this kind of cold, but I had faith in what the stories told of true love, how I'd find true love. 
Here I am in this room again Just as lost and small That lonely girl with a desperate heart Is who I am After all There's no escaping her But now the dream is gone Because I spent a lifetime counting on And Dove had first into his Turns out you can't find love If you don't know what it is All right, in the review section, the three of us have gotten a chance to get over to the St. James Theater, which uh, now and forever will be playing Frozen. Uh So, Michael, why don't you give us an introduction to Frozen? (laughs) This is a Disney's stage musical adaptation of what I believe is the most successful animated film of all time. Uh, certainly one of the most successful frozen. Um, and it does have some elements that made the movie so successful. Um, I would say the relationship between the two central characters, the sisters, Anna and Elsa is intact. And, Another element of the film, which was largely responsible for its incredible success, was the power ballad "Let It Go," uh, which is was proved to be a phenomenon when when the movie was released, and that of course is still there. Um, there's also some interesting plot elements in terms of these sisters' relationships with um, their uh, well, one of the sisters' relationship. Uh, with two men uh, who uh, she may or may not be marrying. Uh, Well, there's one guy who we think she's going to marry, and uh, it looks like that's really going to happen, but then she meets this other really nice guy, and we're not sure what's going to happen with that. And um, the way that part of the plot turns out is is really quite clever and unexpected. So... uh, I think that the movie really played on that and that that element is also here. Uh, but one element that's not here on stage at the St. James Theater is, the, is, is, of course, the gorgeous, phenomenal state-of-the-art animation that the movie had. And I think um, that is really missed because the – uh, the physical production, the, the technical aspects of th- this production do not um, find a stage equivalent of that for the, for the most part. There is one stunning effect at the very end of the first act in the Let It Go number, um, which I won't say more about because it, it, it should be a surprise um, for those who, who don't know the movie. And even if you do know the movie, just to see how it is done on stage. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's certainly not a, a cheap production uh, in any way, but it doesn't seem uh, that it's creative and inspired in the way that, for example, the Lion King uh, stage adaptation was so famously creative and inspired. Um, also, uh, there's another issue here. Um, 
the the book and the score have been expanded in order to make Frozen a full evening's entertainment. And I think there are good reasons and bad reasons to do that. A, a good reason would be to flesh out the narrative and or the characters. Uh, I remember a, a stellar example of that is uh, in Beauty and the Beast, uh, Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Um, in the f- animated film of that, property, the Beast does not even have a a single solo song uh, for whatever reason. So when it was adapted to Broadway, uh, um, a beautiful song was written for him called If I Can't Love Her. And I think it's now become uh, one of the most well-known and beautiful songs in the show. Um, But other reasons to add, to pad uh, a property when bringing it to Broadway is – I think one reason is to make the audience feel that they got their money's worth. Um, uh, The feeling that people uh, judge that in terms of the amount of time they're spending in the theater. And I just don't know if if that is so important. I think that – People would rather have something really good, even if it's relatively short, rather than something that's overstuffed and obviously padded, which is how I feel about this. Uh, And related to that, another reason to add uh, songs, lots of songs, to a pre-existing property like this is to make the score eligible for a Tony Award. Because I believe there's a rule that at least 51 percent of the score needs to be new in order for it to be for the entire score to be nominated for a Tony Award. So, um, in this case, Kristen Anderson Lopez and her husband Robert Lopez have uh, both of whom all already have won um, uh, multiple awards, but Kristen does not yet have a Tony. Um, her husband already is a double EGOT, which is kind of incredible at his age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emmy, Grammy, Emmy Oscar. Age. <laughs> Say at again. Any at, at, well, at any age, yes, but especially. <laughs> um, so maybe I mean this is I, I don't know if this is terrible to say. Maybe this is uh, uh, to help her try to catch to get a Tony and to try to catch up with her husband. But I um, don't think that that's a good reason if the songs that they wind up writing are going to be uninspired. And and I'm afraid that really that's the case here. Um, I'd say this: the new songs are mediocre at best and and uh, and almost all unnecessary uh the low point is this production number at the start of act two i believe it's pronounced higa uh and it's led by kevin delagila as oaken and it features the ensemble of the men and women in flesh-colored body stockings to simulate nudity because they're supposed to be coming from a sauna uh it's certainly one of the oddest moments I've ever seen in any Disney musical or any other musical for that matter. But uh, the song is supposed to be a diversissement and a, and a big dance number and just delightful. But I, I, I just found it incredibly silly. Um, and I wish it, it was not there. Um, the book for this stage version of Frozen is by Jennifer Lee, who wrote the screenplay. And I'd say it's a largely unsuccessful expansion. The humor seems very forced. Uh, even though some of the lines are direct from the screenplay, uh, lines that play really well in the film, uh, the sort of throwaway humor lines, don't seem to land uh, on stage as far as I'm concerned. And I didn't notice it before. I I think maybe some of this is in the film, but there's several very juvenile butt jokes about jokes about people's butts. And there's there's even a double entendre about penis size. 
which mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I That's guess in the movie. That's in the movie. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess um, that uh, the envelope is, is being pushed in, in entertainment aimed at younger people nowadays and, and things like that, which would have previously been considered inappropriate, are, are now thought of as okay. But I, I don't know. It still makes me a little a little leery and queasy. Um, what else do I have to say? Oh, it's interesting to note that there were tremendous changes in the creative team for this show before uh, rehearsals actually began. The original director was to be Alex Timbers, and he was replaced by Michael Grandage, uh, or Grandage, however you say that. Um, The scenic and costume design was originally announced to be done by Bob Crowley, but he's been replaced by Christopher Oram. And the choreography originally announced to be done by Christopher Gatelli uh, is now the work of Rob Ashford, which in that last case in particular, I think that's a huge step downward. Um, Perhaps the show would have been much better with the original team, but obviously that'll always remain a huge what if in theater history. Um, But it's so interesting to think about how different it would have been. Uh, uh, When Alex Timbers left, uh, it was announced as creative differences and, and, um, who knows? Maybe someday people will talk about what that amounted to, what his vision of the show was that might have been different from what we wound up seeing. Um, but anyway, the uh, leads in this production, Elsa is Casey Levy. Anna is Patty Murin, uh, who has been a, a guest on our podcast some time ago. Christoph is Jelani Aladdin. Hans is John Riddle. Olaf the Snowman, I think one of definitely uh, an audience favorite, is Greg Hildreth. Uh, and that's um, uh, the actor standing there manipulating a puppet in the style of a, a lot of the puppets in The Lion King. Whereas Sven the Reindeer is, uh, is an actor, Andrew Parazzi, uh, at certain performances, Adam Jepsen, in what's basically the equivalent of a, uh, you know, a horse outfit but uh but it's one person in it i guess not two uh and and i i'm not sure i guess he has to just kind of lean over and uh be in that position for all the time that he's on stage as the reindeer which fortunately is not too much because i think that might be rather um rather hard on one's body um i think uh Casey Levy and Patty Murin both give fine performances. Uh, they they do both look like mature adults, uh, which changes the story a little bit. Uh, and I'm almost a little surprised that the casting didn't go a little younger uh, because these girls are supposed to be, I guess, maybe late teenagers, early 20s uh, when, when the bulk of the story takes place. There's also the section at the beginning where they're played by uh, younger girls, and, and, and that is here uh, also. Um, I... Uh, I didn't find that there was much chemistry between Patty Murin and Jelani Aladdin as Kristoff compared to the off the charts chemistry and charm that generated by these characters as animated in the film and as voiced by Kristen Bell and Jonathan Groff. I don't know. I just didn't feel the connection there. Um, And uh, so from all reports, uh, this show was a huge success at the box office. Uh, I would think that I would guess that word of mouth uh, is good and will continue to be good enough to keep it at the St. James for many years. But I, I did find it 
quite disappointing in several respects as an adaptation of a, a really, really wonderful, successful film. All right, Peter, what did you think of this? Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, um, film is a far more realistic medium than the stage uh, most of the time. But an animated musical film is substantially less realistic than a stage musical. So we wind up giving more latitude and forbearance to characters and situations that appear in, I don't know if this is a pejorative term, but cartoons. You know, So five years ago when we first met Anna um, – we smiled when she came out with these 21st century uh, observations in language like, OK, can I just say something crazy? You know, that type of thing. That's sort of funny in a cartoon um, because the face and the mouth out of which these quips come, you know, aren't real. And um, it, it, so it, it keeps them from seeming odd or unbelievable. But now you have full blooded people on stage. And so lines like that come across simply as anachronistic. And uh, there aren't as many anachronisms in this one, nearly as many as there are in Aladdin, but there are still plenty in terms of that. So it's a little strange as far as I'm concerned. Um, frankly, um, I'm not going to mention the name of the kid I saw playing young Anna. And um, but I, I thought she was atrocious and she was. Uh, let me tell you that Ritalin is not a sponsor of this show because uh, <laughs> the kid is so hyper. And I thought, thank God, we're not going to have to see her after a few minutes. But then out comes Patty Murin out with the same type of um, Ritalin deprived um, attitude. And, you know, I think she's playing it more like she's. Princess Winifred in uh, Once Upon a Mattress, and I bet she'd be very good in that. Now, I am not blaming her for this hyper, hyper, hyper performance where she smiles like crazy all night long. She smiles when she's happy. She smiles when she's unhappy. She smiles when she doesn't understand something and wants to pretend she understands something. Um, I'd like, In a way, I'd like to go back with a stopwatch and see um, how much she <laughs> smiles, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's 98% of the show. And so while Carol Channing set the record for playing the most performances in a female role and Yul Brenner for the most performances in a male role, I say that Patty Murin sets the records for the most smiles given in any performance. So um, now the thing is, yeah, you might say, well, you know, it's 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 a funny show and uh, all that goes with that. And uh, so therefore, what's the problem if she smiles? What's the problem if she's like Princess Winifred in Once Upon a Mattress? Frozen, you know, that Once Upon a Mattress, which I adore, don't misunderstand me, is a musical comedy and has nothing else on its mind but being a funny, um, happy-go-lucky musical comedy. But Frozen has two important messages, very important messages. One, don't trust love at first sight because we really believe that that guy who she meets early on is going to be the love of her life. That mm. we're, we're inclined to do that because, of course, especially seeing the, in a, an animated feature, that seems to be what happens in those things. And at the end, we we I, I love this message. The sister love is as valuable as romantic love. So now I do not blame Patty Murin on the little child because this is the way they are directed because there is such a contrast between um, them and the... Um, the two people who play uh, Elsa, the young Elsa, who's who's very good, and uh, Casey Levy, who I think is terrific in playing 
you should pardon the expression ice queen, but she's not. You can really see the guilt in her because, of course, she um, unleashed some magic that ter- turned out to be unfortunate, and she's very wary about her powers. But, I mean, the internal struggle is right there. So, obviously, this is what Michael Grandage wanted. He wanted a hyper uh, Patty Murin. Um, so... The, the the poor soul is doing what she's been asked to do. So I don't really blame her per se, but I wish that they had taken a look at, it's too late now, but I wish they had seen Jesse Mueller's uh, performance as Carol King and Beautiful. Um, now there's an unsure woman too, who often gave out a little nervous laugh before auditioning her songs, but the subtle way that Jesse Mueller played her and how Mark Buny directed her for that matter, made us genuinely care about her, root for her, and become delighted by her eventual success. But granted, just made it seem is too ridiculous for us to take them seriously as heroines. So that's my problem there. Um, so um, I, I, I really had a tough time with this one. But, you know, I am hoping my theater world committee uh, votes for Andrew Parazzi as, um, <laughs> as the reindeer. <laughs> I'm telling you, Sven, I mean, it, 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 I, so many people I have talked to, the first thing they say is, yeah, but the reindeer was great. You know, and, and indeed he is. I mean, especially the fact that he has to manipulate all of them by himself. You know, anybody who's seen Gypsy or Hello, Dolly knows that usually horses, which is essentially the same thing in terms of stage, um, have two people in them, you know, as Michael alluded to, but not here. You know, he plays it uh, himself. Mm. So, um, so that's that's really um, a, a terrific performance. He really gives personality to this, um, after all, um, puppet. Well, now the thing is, now if you have a guy playing a reindeer, why don't you have a guy playing a snowman? Because it takes about an hour into the show before out comes great Greg Hildreth um, with you know those little um, control sticks and and he's behind him dressed in a white suit uh, with a white hat and all that and he is playing Olaf. I think they should have got a kid to play Olaf. Uh, get him in a, a costume because you know you might say, well wait, 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 wait. Avenue Q, they they have puppets. You know, I mean, what's the problem? We're used to puppets there. The Lion King has puppets. I mean, you know, we're used to it. Yeah, but. I I don't know if you've ever heard that famous 10-minute rule in the theater, which is if you establish a world in the first 10 minutes, then you can do whatever you've established in that world. And the thing is, suddenly, for the first and only time in the show, we have a guy coming out manipulating a puppet an hour into it. So it's a little jarring to me. And I wish they had hired a kid. Um, And, uh, yeah, sure, I mean, it might be a case that uh, they don't want to spend an extra salary. Because Mm -hmm. as Michael alluded to, um, this is not as ornate a production as you might think. Frankly, I think the scenery looks like it was taken out of a Schubert warehouse from an operetta from way back when. Ah. And um, the lighting does all the work, as far as I'm concerned. Natasha Katz does a terrific job with the lighting. So wow. I think that's very good. Um, I think that the songs do the job. Uh, so um, they're efficient. Um and it's funny, you know, when Michael mentioned the um, the the thing about the butt, there's uh, a lyric that looks like uh, it's going to be very vulgar, and oh, it yeah. fakes us and it fakes us out wonderfully. So, um, you know, but anachronisms, you know, even the choreography. This uh, to me, this is one of the cheap things that happens uh, sometimes in choreography. That there they are doing a, a dance, and then suddenly they go into 21st century or 20th century moves, boogieing, so to speak, and uh, you know that gets a cheap laugh. You know, and it's it, it, there's not, there's a difference between getting a cheap laugh from your audience and choreography and getting real admiration, and I think that's um, a big problem as well. So, and finally, I mean, really, um, next to 
an onstage marriage ceremony. Is there anything more boring in a musical than a coronation? Uh, so seeing um, Elsa crowned as queen uh, to me was a waste of stage time. This is a long show. It's two and a half hours. And um, so uh, not a disaster by any means. Uh, and I don't mean to imply that, but um, uh, as Michael implied, it could have been a lot better. Well, as far as the anachronisms, I guess that's just something that is very popular nowadays. Look at the tremendous success of the film The Greatest Showman, which I still haven't seen, but uh, I've seen. I know enough to know that it's uh, the whole thing is an anachronism, and there are so many other um, uh, examples. I think maybe Moulin Rouge. Really that's right. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Push right. the envelope in that, and of course, that's mm. coming to Broadway too. So, mm-hmm. so there mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> mm. Good, point. Good point. All right. So, uh, I might take a little bit of a different view than you guys. Um, uh, I really, really like this, and I also saw a totally different cast than you guys. So uh, maybe that had something to do with it. Patty Murin was out. Uh, when I saw it and there was uh, her understudy uh, Aisha Aisha Jackson uh, went on as Anna uh, and they uh, went it seems like they went through the whole thing and I saw a a different um, Sven I saw a different uh, really handful of other people uh, and I think that I saw the young Anna and the young Elsa were different than the ones that you guys saw. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I did think that they had three songs that needed to be trimmed or cut altogether. I thought that that Higgy scene should have been cut altogether. One of these things is not like the other. And then, and I felt like the, the, the show sort of towards the end, I was like, Oh, is this not over yet? And I think if they had cut that scene and and trimmed back three of the songs or cut them all together, it would have been great. My young Anna and young Elsa, I was totally charmed, and I thought, wow, these these girls are going to do do great things. I really really enjoyed Frozen, um, and I <laughs> I was in the fourth row center of the orchestra. And there was a family of four in front of us uh, in the third row center recording with their uh, phone. Uh. Recording with their phone. And a big, huge security man came and escorted uh-uh. me out of the theater at intermission. Wow. I mean, he was big and scary. And he okay. said, excuse me, sir, can I talk to you for a second? <laughs> and uh, And it was a... Uh, looked like a husband and wife and two girls who were nine, ten, eleven years old, or something like that. Uh, and uh, they just did not understand that you could not do. And they were recording. And I think uh, Cassie was on, although Patty was out. Cassie like looked directly at them and scorned. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, interesting. I also have uh, some uh, some friends that are not big theater goers who I was talking to, they went to see, they got tickets for frozen right away because they're big fans in the movie and they really didn't, weren't very hot on it. Uh, and I think that they were looking for a direct 
copy of the film, which this Frozen is really, the stage version of Frozen, I would say, is more based upon the movie. It's not really a direct, you know, we have definite uh, changes in the in the storyline um, with those... Uh, the the enchanted people who come through the window. I don't know what to call them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they replace the little troll-like figures from the movie uh, in in helping um, to heal uh, Anna from her injuries. Um, but that that's done very differently. Uh, I really I, I enjoyed Frozen. I think that definitely it's not it's not perfect. But I had a very good time at it. So that is Frozen for us. <laughs> Peter, you got to see Bobby Clearly at Roundabout Underground. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, uh, it may be unfair to actually say this, but I, it, it happens. So as a result, I do want to um, establish that uh, I it's a three-act play. And... <sighs> I have never seen this in any three-act play that I have ever witnessed. Now, granted, to be perfectly fair about how many three-act plays are there anymore, um, they just aren't. Uh, so, uh, so this is a long evening. But what I'm getting at is more than anything else is that after Act 1 and after Act 2, there was not one hand clap of applause. Not one. So now I I will say – that um, I remember this happening out in New Jersey when I was reviewing for the Star Ledger, and I reported this. And the managing director of the theater uh, wrote a letter to the editors saying that um, the reason they didn't applaud was because they were mesmerized. So every time I went out to the theater after that uh, on opening night and there was the party, I would go up to him and say, "Oh, you must be so disappointed that the people applauded; they weren't mesmerized." You know. <laughs> so, um, but you could say that, that maybe that's the reason why, but I don't think so. I think that they really uh, weren't very happy with um, Bobby clearly. I think that's what it really comes down to more than anything else. It's a very simple story, um, and it is about Bobby who has murdered somebody, and in, in a very small town in Nebraska, very small, and the thing is more than anything else, you have to wonder why he would come back to town if indeed uh, after he served his sentence I mean one would think that he would really uh, be in prison for life but we all know that people get out for one reason or another so uh, Bobby gets out and he comes back to the town now that's unlikely but I will say that I can really understand his coming back so that he can actually be punished um, and I, I that that strikes me as uh, as real in the third act, there's a talent show that Tom puts on every year, and Bobby wants to get involved in it. And uh, there, there are different feelings about whether or not he should be involved. But more to the point, when he gets up there, he does something really harrowing. And I defy you to guess what he's going to do. It's the biggest surprise in the play. It's a very, 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 very smart move um, to, by, by the playwright, um, Alex Lubisher. Very smart. But, but I do not believe that they would let him continue for more than 15 seconds considering what he's doing. And they let him go on for, well, minutes uh, anyway, certainly more than one minute. So, so that ruined it for me, you know, because I really expected, eventually they do stop him. 
but I don't understand why it takes them so long to stop him because it really is in terrible taste what he's doing. So, um, yeah, it, it could have been cut by a lot, and I think it would have been far more effective. I, I'm, as much as an hour, I'd say, frankly, I think it would have been far more effective. Uh, but the strangest thing of all, now this is in Roundabout Underground, which means you're going to sit on folding chairs, which isn't much fun for um, this length of time. But it's in their very, very, very small space um, <clears throat> underneath the Laura Pell's Theater. And... These You would think that these are bare-bone productions, but even though there's no scenery to speak of, what they've actually done, because the murder took place in a cornfield, I mean this, there must be 8,000 ears of corn in containers um, surrounding the set. So uh, think of like kitchen cabinets that are clear. Um, 8,000 at least, and I bet I wouldn't be surprised if I'm low on that estimate. And wow, to put so much time, effort, and certainly expense into doing this to get this effect is amazing to me that um, Roundabout Underground would would put so much money. But let me tell you, the walls have ears of corn in this show. And don't be surprised if you're really um, mesmerized by that as much as you are by the play until it gets to that fascinating and unnerving talent show episode wow so many ears of corns i wonder if it's some sort of um uh piece of art rather than actual pieces of corn yeah yeah it does look like an art installation actually good point james yeah i'm very good yeah um then <laughs> so anyway who <laughs> the ears have walls yes walls they do ears. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> all right Michael, you and I got a chance to see Rocktopia at the Broadway Theater. Um, so do you want to start with Rocktopia? Sure. Yeah, I thought that um, the show did contain some interesting combinations of classical and rock music. Uh, for example, it opens, I believe, with also Sprach Zarathustra by Richard Strauss, which is best known as the main theme of the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, for which it was co-opted by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, and that goes into, uh, of all things, Come Sail Away, the, the Styx song. And I thought actually it, it worked pretty well. Um, uh, the, the, that's what ba- basically the show is. It's, it's this interesting um, kind of melange of classical and rock and showing uh, elements that they share and and, and also how they're different. Um, Nessun Dorma is heard sung by Rob Evan in a a more or less traditional arrangement, although in a somewhat lower key, and then in a rock arrangement. uh, And that's so... I guess <laughs> Nessun Dorma is, you know, for some years now has been considered the big pop hit from opera. And so I guess that's why it's there. And it works pretty well. And then uh, another Puccini piece, Musetta's Waltz from La Boheme, uh, is uh, uh, sort of transmogrified into something, the Beatles song, something, which is beautiful. Um and the finale of this show, uh, g- given the the whole concept of the show, uh, you won't be surprised to hear that the finale is 
Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, because that really touches all bases. I thought there was a lot of talent in the show. There's also a, a tremendous feeling of cheesiness about it, I'm sorry to say, largely because of the um, – uh, well, largely because of the projections that are used. Somebody said a lot of them look like clip art, and that is that is um, the uh, kind of the impression that I got. Uh, it 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 it's not something you would normally see on Broadway. I, I guess you could consider it an interim booking at the huge Broadway theater, which um, lately it seems has have been ha- having trouble finding shows um that can fill it but you know that was that has been true of the St. James Theater for for quite some time and now that has frozen so maybe um the Broadway will uh will get what it needs with uh King Kong is scheduled for there isn't it Mhm yeah uh but in the meantime uh unless it's been extended which I don't believe it has Rocktopia um is has only a 6 week engagement uh the other I should mention the other um lead singers uh, i mentioned rob evan we have chloe lowry tony vincent who has been on broadway before and jesus christ superstar uh kimberly nicole allison cambridge and the guest um vocalist on the night i went uh was pat monahan from train and the audience really seemed to respond to him very well uh the conductor of the roughly like 20 piece orchestra and 30 voice chorus, I believe, is uh, Maestro Randall Craig Fleischer. And uh, that is Rocktopia, a classical revolution as it's billed. <laughs> uh, you, um, you won't probably see anything like it on Broadway again. And indeed, uh, not to get into the details, but there were some issues with um, equity uh, as to whether the uh, the chorus people, I believe, were the issue, w- would be considered equity uh Performers, or, or, or under some other, some other umbrella like AGMA or AGVA or, or whatever, uh, but that was resolved. Um, I think just uh, just in time, <laughs> and, and uh, so the show was able to go on. But for a while there, it looked like it might get closed down or fined or something like that. So I saw Rocktopia as well. Um... Wow, there's some really great voices on stage, and I think it's a really poorly executed concept. I mm. didn't find relationships between the. I didn't find a relationship between the classical pieces and the um, more contemporary pieces, and I wish that that they had done more work there. Did you find that they had relationships, or I just felt like it was a kind of an A B A B A B playing of that. Uh, and well, the, vi- the violin player made me nu- made me nuts. Oh yeah, she was really featured, wasn't she? I mean, uh, yeah, a lot. And, yeah, and I mean, I I I I've seen um, Tony Vincent in a bunch of shows, and I was like, what is Tony doing? I was like, I you know, he's playing this kind of. I don't know if he's playing a character or if that's just Tony Vincent, but like this, this, this sort of uh, emo grunge new age singer thing like that. Tony's got a great voice. Stop with the crap. What were you going to say, Michael? <laughs> oh, well, I thought some of the arrangements uh, helped to make some of the songs feel like they went together. And also, uh, as some of it was more thematic uh, even than musical. For example, if you if you do that 
also Sprach Zarathustra from 2001, and you have these, you know, outer space images. And then the the next song that that goes into is Come Sail Away. Uh, there's a kind of a, a, you know, a kind of a... A, uh, a through line there, I guess, in terms of the theme. And then also, uh, if you, it helps if you know the lyrics to Mazetta's Waltz, which is all about this woman uh, singing about how beautiful she is and how uh, men can never stop staring at her. Uh, which, and so when that goes into something in the way she moves attracts me like no other lover, there's a, a sort of a relationship there. So I thought that was, you know, it was clever enough. It wasn't anything very deep. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that in the 1500 seats of the Broadway theater, maybe four people knew that. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure. And there weren't there weren't super titles or anything like that. To, to, no, uh, and they totally wasted that. You mentioned the background, the the projections, the stock footage. People made money on this show. Uh, Elizabeth Vincentelli, in her New York Times review, wrote, "If anything, Rocktopia will go down as featuring one of the most misguided PowerPoint presentations to ever grow, grace a Broadway stage." I mean, <laughs> they really M's wasted, words. Wow! <laughs> they really wasted an opportunity to use those the projections on the back to really engage the audience, other than looking at sort of comfortably numb footage, you know, mm-hmm. on, on, of uh, flowers growing or of sunsets or of beaches and waves crashing. I was like, you know, they spent a fortune on that back projection thing and didn't really use it. I, I think it's a I think it's a, a, a producing and directorial disaster, but it's a shame for all those talented people on the stage. But also some some of it was very dicey and questionable. I thought, like, for example, we saw an image of Anne Frank yeah. uh, during – I forget what song it was. it a song about heroes or something like that? But uh, I, I just have to be very careful when you use images like that in, yeah. a, in a context mm-hmm. like this. So. All right, so let's move forward. Uh, Peter, you saw Hitler's Tasters at Centenary Stage Company, which is part of Centenary (laughs) University. So uh, tell us about that. You know, it never occurred to me, but you're quite right about that. It recently did become Centenary University, so congratulations for the college going up to the university status. But the Centenary Stage Company has been out there for a long, long time, and they even had a beautiful, I mean beautiful new theater built. <clears throat> this one's in their second space, and it's called Hitler's Tasters, and it really is based on a true story about women who were engaged to taste Hitler's food before he ate it, just on the off chance that it was poison. And um, they certainly want uh, the Fuhrer to live, especially one of the girls. Um, And that's what's really nice here in Michelle Colas Brooks' play because there's great orchestration of character. There's one who is so militant about we are are so honored to be doing this. We are saving the Fuhrer's life and denying, of course, uh, in very much denial about the fact that she could drop dead in in 22 seconds. So, um, but she believes in Hitler because Hitler is going to make Germany great again. That's actually a line in the play. And needless to say, it got some uh, laughs from the audience when it happened. So, 
fine idea for a play, and I am telling you that Ms. Brooks has thought of every permutation possible when it comes to um, should should we eat it? Um, what can we? I don't like this food. I I, I I look forward to this food. I love this food, um, but of course I could die. All that kind of business. Uh, one girl mysteriously disappears. Another takes her place and is very naive about what she's been asked to do. It's only an hour and 15 minutes long, but frankly, it should be substantially shorter because I do think Ms. Brooks is miscalculated in one tremendous area. And that is, and I wonder if she did this to pat it out, she makes it contemporary. Sounds odd, doesn't it? I mean, the girls are taking selfies with their phones. So there's a lot of stuff that's anachronistic. Now, after the play was over, I um, spoke to the wonderful director of the program there, Catherine Rust, who runs the women's playwright program there. And I said, gee, that was terrific. And I was about to say, but I don't like the anachronism. She said, well, tell the playwright. And um, she was sitting directly behind. So I I met the woman and um, I said, so tell me about the anachronisms. And she said something like, I'm not saying I'm quoting her. That would be unfair. But it was something like, well, I I want to show the girls are basically the same no matter what era they grow up in. I don't think this is the arena to do that because I think this is a very dramatic situation. And if it had to be a one-act play, so be it. But but when it is good, it is great. So uh, especially because the four actresses in it, let me uh, name them, Jennifer Robbins, Emmeline Williams, Allie Borgstrom, and Brianna Morris – are sensational. So, <clears throat> so all that is very much in place. And um, my hats off too to Catherine Rust and uh, everybody out at Centenary Stage Company at Centenary University for um, for going out on a limb with this one. Because um, I, I would imagine there was a lot of discussion about the anachronisms, but. I, I would imagine the votes fell in favor that when it really is powerful, it, it, it's stuff that should be seen. So Hitler's Tasters, I hope she reworks it. I hope we see it in New York. Great. All right. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, if folks want to check that out. Um I got a chance to see Lobby Hero uh, this week. Uh, we talked about it on last week's show. I just wanted to throw into this thing uh, my vote to get there and see this show. I thought it was just about perfect. Good. Um, I, I really, it's such an extraordinary uh, evening at the theater uh, for tremendous actors, some great direction. Uh, go see it. It's really wonderful, and and Michael and Peter did a really comprehensive review about it on last week's show, so there's no need for me to get back into that, but check that out. And Uh, again, those those two movie stars, they could have done anything. They mm -hmm. could have done something easier. They could have done something lighter. They could Mm -hmm. have done something more obviously crowd-pleasing, but instead they decided to be in a really – a revival of a really excellent play by a a wonderful playwright, and they're – Everyone involved, uh, it, it really should be applauded. I agree. Tremendous. All right. Um, before we wrap up for today, uh, Michael and I just were going to talk for a second. Peter didn't get a chance to see Jesus Christ Superstar live, but uh, I saw it. Michael saw it. We we talked uh, in length about it on Today on Broadway uh, last Monday's show, if you want to listen to Matt Tamanini's take on it and some other some other things. But, Michael, what did you think of Jesus Christ Superstar Live? 
Well, in brief, I thought it was vastly superior to all of the previous uh, live musicals on TV. I think the idea, it's interesting. Uh, it, it was billed from the beginning as a concert. Uh, and it was in the sense of being done, it, it was a, a, done at an armory in Brooklyn with a huge live audience uh, and uh, and with the musicians on stage. And so, it, you know, in that sense, it was it had the feeling of a concert, but it was fully staged and fully choreographed and even f- uh, fully costumed. I, I thought initially that um, that they were going to go with a, a street dress kind of look because I, I think I, I saw a preview of it that, that looked like everyone was just in modern street dress. But the, no, the actual costumes were a lot more uh, creative than that. So I I thought it was very well done. My, my main issues were uh, just that <laughs> my main issue was with the audience. I felt that there were um, mm. many moments where they were making it, trying to make it all about themselves and screaming and whooping in the middle of songs and, and, and during brief pauses. And I, I really hate that. I am told who knows if it's true that there were uh, people uh, who were stationed in the audience that with the express uh, who were mm-hmm. told, mm-hmm. told to I, behave I that was, way. To, yeah. Michael, yeah. I heard that. I heard that as well. I had some friends that, that were at the live performance and I was told that it was sort of like the old uh, 50s version of the applause sign in a television studio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I agree with that. I really hate that. There's nothing more exciting than a spontaneous audience reaction to something, uh, but nothing more annoying than a manufactured one. So that was one of, that was one of my huge uh, problems with it. I thought John Legend sounded absolutely beautiful in most of the score. It, it's too bad he doesn't have the uh, – the kind of high notes that we're used to in um, that role. Uh, uh, although uh, on that note, I'm told that the recording that has been released, uh, you know, is not the same performance that we saw on TV and that he um, perhaps sounds better in that respect on the recording. I, 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 I don't have it yet, so I can't vouch for that. Some, but, some folks who were at their, uh, they had a rehearsal earlier in the day said that, uh, they think that John Legend blew out his voice. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, a few I, others might have blown out their voice, uh, you know, uh, going too hard in the rehearsal beforehand. Yes, I, I, I even heard it a little bit in um, in uh, Judas's uh, – some of his high notes. I, I felt like that he wasn't in the freshest voice. But Brandon Victor Dixon, I think everyone agreed that he he did a wonderful job. And Sarah Bareilles – as far as I'm concerned, her voice is perfect for for Mary Magdalene, and it was so great to see you know Broadway people like Norm Lewis and um, uh, 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 Jason, Jason Tam. Tam. Yeah. Yes, and then uh, it was interesting for me to see Jin Ha uh, looking so different uh, than he looked in M Butterfly that I would never have known it was the same person if if I hadn't been told. <laughs> so uh, I I think. Yeah, I think that this was a, a real slam dunk overall and a, a really beautiful job. Um, someone said, I don't know if this was their own idea or if they had heard um, uh, her behind the scenes, but it was so – someone said it was so successful that they thought that rather than uh, trying to keep coming up with new shows, uh, uh, new new ideas for, uh, for older shows that are good for uh, – 
for these live TV telecasts that they for this one, they would just do this every Easter with a different cast. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, Brandon Victor Dixon. I think that he just knocked it out of the park as Judas and that I'm afraid we might lose him to the film and television world just because of this outstanding performance. And we'll have to see how the Emmys go to see if uh, some of these folks are going to lock up Emmys for this uh, these performances. It is available on the NBC website if you did miss it. So you can go to, to the NBC website and watch it as well. I don't know how long they're going to have it up, but it is uh, up as of uh, this morning. And the recording is out there, as Michael has mentioned as well. Speaking of recordings, Michael, you got to uh, listen to Cy Coleman's Jazz Man's, Jazz Man's Broadway. So tell us about that. Oh, yeah, just briefly. This is a wonderful new release from Harbinger Records of um, recordings that Cy Coleman made with uh, his jazz uh, trio. Uh, he, he was... For, he first became famous uh, doing that uh, long before well, – well, several years before um, he started to come into his own as a Broadway composer. And this is just a really wonderful recording of song, jazz interpretations of songs from an, an interesting trio of shows, Jamaica, Flower Drum Song, and South Pacific. Uh, I believe the Jamaica – songs were originally released as one album, one LP flower drum song was another and the South Pacific, um, songs of which there were several here. Let's see. Uh, one, two, three, well, four songs. Uh, those, uh, are released for the first time taken from, let's, it says rare transcription, rare transcription discs that were made in the fifties. And, but they were never, these songs were never commercially released, the South Pacific ones. So that's a ni really nice extra bonus that you got. So we can thank Ken Bloom uh, for producing this for Harbinger Records. It's it's a wonderful, really, really, really enjoyable album. Full disclosure, Ken Bloom is one of my best friends. Uh, and um, so certainly I, I will put that out there. But my, what remarkable work Harbinger Records does, and what's coming up soon that's going to be pretty fascinating, I bet, is uh, a retrospective of Harvey Schmidt and Tom Jones' work. Uh, Tom Jones wrote the liner notes for the booklet, and you're going to hear songs from Grover's Corners. Mm. He showed the adaptation of Our Town that didn't happen, uh, that was supposed to happen even with Mary Martin playing the stage manager, but didn't happen. And a lot of material from the 50s, when they were just starting out, even down to their college shows, uh, you have some of that too. And songs dropped from I Do, I Do. And <clears throat> what's really nifty is... Um, uh, plant a radish from the Fantastics. Now you might say, "Wait, wait, wait! Please, we've heard Plant a Radish." Yeah, <laughs> uh, but this is from the TV version that came out in 1964, where Burt Lahr and Stanley Holloway played the fathers. More interesting still is the fact that it's orchestrated. It isn't just piano and harp. So, um, so I think you're really going to have a good time listening to this upcoming album of um, Schmidt and Jones rarities. All right, so I'm looking forward to that new re recording from Harbinger. Uh, before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, 
it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broaderradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. If uh, perhaps uh, you were excited about um, Elizabeth Vincentelli's review of Rocktopia, we'll have the <laughs> review link there for you. Uh, also, the Cy Coleman and Jasmine's Broadway um, link to the Harbinger Records, so you can check that out as well. Uh, so, Peter, why don't you give us the answer to this week's trivia question, then we're going to go to Michael for a question. Mm -hmm. uh, last week I asked, a current Broadway attraction actually mentions in its dialogue the actual name of the show that was the previous tenant in that same theater. What's the name of the theater, the current show, and the previous one? Well, at the Neil Simon Theater, Roy Cohn in Angels in America is discussing Broadway theater tickets with a friend. One of the possibilities he mentions is Cats, which indeed recently finished its first Broadway revival at that very theater. Drugs, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Doug Strassler and Alyssa Marr, Broadway's cutest new couple, collaborated and was the first to get it, followed by Ron Fassler, Kyle Bailey, and Alex Lauer. So, Michael, what do you got for us? Oh, this is a, a, a brief question. What piece of classical music has been performed in two different Broadway shows this season? All right, so if you have an answer for this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you are on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thank you so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Kissed a girl. I mean, a human girl. Oh. What do you know about anything? Anything? Anyone with half a brain would have worn some winter gear. Anyone with half a life would have one friend who's not a deer. I do. Any fool who jumps headlong is gonna bang their head. Any fool who doesn't jump right down is probably gonna end up dead. Whoa! Like I said. You okay there? I've been better. Don't worry. I've got you. Oh, you should have listened to me. I know danger when I see it. Just like I know love when I see it. Whoa! Whoa, whoa, whoa. Thank you. Huh. That's not quite how I thought we'd end up. You gotta think things through in life and in love. Touche. Here, grab on and brace yourself. Ready? Here we go. to point out that we've come a good long way here and that you're wow really strong i left a lot of ice you saved my life just now i guess i gotta say here my first impression was wrong and see you're nice that jump was really brave your catch was quite a save You've got some guts. You've got some brains. Thanks. With miles and miles to go, I guess it's nice to know that I can trust you. Though the questions still remain, 
We know one thing, this trip should be interesting. What do you 